Well, over the last several weeks, uh, our, our minds have been filled with all the issues related to yesterday's election, and it's good for us to come back this evening to put all of that, that stuff aside and to have our minds cleansed by a study of the perfections of God. I think what we saw yesterday was uh, really the definition of insanity. Uh, insanity is described as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And as you looked at the, the results of most of the election, uh, the, the elections for the different congressmen and governors, especially in this state, uh, you just see that people on the one hand are so dissatisfied and yet keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. It is insanity. And we do see that despite a, a government that runs as part of its platform a celebration of the murder of unborn babies that celebrates sexualizing children and that directly attacks God's institution for marriage and erases all distinctions between male and female, a government that rejoices on those things and once again gets elected into power, uh, we are reminded once again that we are aliens and strangers in this land. And that's okay. Our God is on his throne and nothing happens that is apart from his sovereign design. But as I said, these times that we have together, any time when the body of Christ can come together, it is a cleansing from all of that garbage that's so prevalent in the dark world in which we live. And I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon said about the study of God when he said this, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And that's why we're here tonight, and we can rejoice in this. This truth is what gives us joy, not the, the results there in the world, but it's this truth that gives us joy and, and reminds us where our focus is, reminds us where our life is, and our life is hidden in this God. Well, as Spurgeon notes, there is nothing that will expand the mind more and bless the soul more than the study of the Trinity, the triunity of God, and it is to that, that perfection of God that we now turn in our series on the attributes of God. We have to begin with a definition. When we talk about the triunity of God, what are we, what are we referring to? And we start with, with some, uh, some descriptions of what this doctrine is, what it refers to. And we begin with this central definition. This is key, that when we speak of the triunity of God, we are referring to God's three-in-oneness. God's three in oneness. God is eternally one in essence, but three in persons. Now the Bible teaches very clearly that there is but one God. And this singularity of deity, this singularity of, of, of God, his, his, His substance is what theologians will call his essence. There is one divine essence, one divine substance, or you could say one divine nature of God, not multiple, there is just one. At the same time, the Bible also teaches that this divine essence is possessed wholly and equally by three God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is this plurality that relates to persons. 
So when we think of the triunity of God, when we think of the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to understand it as three in oneness. The oneness refers to what theologians call essence, and the threeness refers to what theologians call persons. Three in one, one essence, three persons. One early church theologian by the name of Basil of, of uh, Caesarea put it this way. The distinction between usia, essence, and hypostasis, person, is the same as that between the general and the particular. Wherefore, in the case of the Godhead, we confess one essence or substance so as not to give a variant definition of existence. But we confess a particular hypostasis in order that our conception of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit may be without confusion and clear. He goes on to say, if we have no distinct perception of the separate characteristics, namely fatherhood, sonship, and sanctification, referring to the Spirit, but form our conception of God from the general idea of existence, we cannot possibly give a sound account of our faith. We must, therefore, confess the faith by adding the particular, that is the person, to the common, that is the essence. The Godhead is common. He's referring to usia. He's referring to essence. The Godhead is common. The fatherhood, he's referring to person there, is particular. So he goes on to say this. We must therefore combine the two and say, I believe in God the Father. The like course must be pursued in the confession of the Son. We must combine the particular with the common and say, I believe in God the Son. So in the case of the Holy Ghost, we must make our utterance conform to the appellation and say, in God the Holy Ghost. So it's important to recognize as we define this and set on our course this evening that we recognize these two key concepts of God as we talk about and study his three-in-oneness. On the one hand, there is the concept of his essence. And his essence is one. And we talk, when we talk of his essence, we emphasize singularity and we must as we will see in, in a few moments. We must emphasize, we must stand on this hill and emphasize the singularity of God's essence. There is one God and only one. At the same time, we must emphasize the persons of God. There are three. And this emphasizes the distinction that is Within the Godhead, there are three persons, each of them distinct. It is not just one person in different manifestations, but three persons in one essence. And from this, we derive, from this truth, we derive the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each simultaneously and eternally God, possessing the divine nature without differentiation or alteration. There's never a time when one of the persons is more God and another one less God. That cannot be. Moreover, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct from one another in person and thus distinct in how they interact with creation and how they reveal themselves to us so that we can know them. We must affirm the oneness of the essence and the threeness of the persons. Once again, 
one of the early church theologians, expresses this profound concept with helpful terms. It's Augustine writing in the fourth century. He says this, quote, there is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Each one of these is God and all of them together are one God. Each of these are a full substance and all together are one substance. But the Father is neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. But the Father is purely the Father, the Son purely the Son, and the Holy Spirit purely the Holy Spirit. These three have the same eternal nature, the same unchangeableness, the same majesty, the same power. Augustine was grappling with the testimony of Scripture that testified over and over again to the singularity of the divine essence. There is one God. And yet he's also grappling with the revelation of God's word that there are three persons in the divine essence. And that statement of Augustine leads to a a diagram that You've probably seen before, but a diagram that doesn't seek to picture the, the character of God, this three in oneness, but seeks to draw out propositions. In fact, we'll, we'll talk more about it later, but any attempt to picture God's three in oneness always falls short. In fact, it's just something that you cannot do. There is not a picture. There is not a a graphic analogy that in any way can describe the triune nature of God. It is impossible. It defies our abilities. All pictures that are used do that and eventually end up in error. And I'll show you some of those a little bit later. They may have even been pictures or graphics that you've used in your effort to try and teach the Trinity, but they all fall short. However, with this diagram, we can draw out propositions that help us understand a little bit better what the Bible teaches with respect to the Trinity. And it begins with this. There is one God, one divine essence. One divine essence. But we also understand from Scripture that each of the persons of the divine essence are truly God. And so we can assert this. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. Moreover, we also assert, based on the witness of Scripture, which we'll get to in a few moments, we also assert that each of the persons of the divine essence are distinguished. They're distinguishable and must be distinguished. So the Father is not the Son nor the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. That diagram that you see is, again, not seeking to picture the Trinity, but draw out the propositions, the terms of the Trinity. Now, to summarize this truth, early Christians began to use the word Trinitas. Early Latin-speaking Christians, in their effort to summarize these realities and, and come up with catchwords that would summarize whole doctrines, began to use this word trinitas. It's, it's Latin. It's, it, it's made up of the Latin term trini or trinus, meaning three or threefold. And then at the end, you have this suffix tas, which refers to a state of being, a state. And so you put those two terms together, you get trinitas, which refers to a threefold state of being. So early Christians latched on to that term, Trinitas, to refer or to summarize this three-in-oneness of God, one essence, three persons, and it is from that term, Trinitas, we get our term in the English, Trinity. 
And yes, you will not find this term in the Hebrew or in the Greek, and we never make that assertion that we do, but a term is only as good as that to which it points. And it's not so much even that this term is is so important, although it is, it's the best that has been coined by the church, but what is most important is what that term points to, what it summarizes. That is what is key. Now, in the history of, uh, of the usage of this term, Trinitas, in the Latin, historians point to the early church theologian, Tertullian, who lived 155 to, to 230 AD. So, in a short time after, the apostle John passes off the scene, a, a couple of decades later, Tertullian is on the scene defending the Christian faith, And he's defending the Christian faith particularly against those heretics that had arisen, especially in the second century, to attack Christianity and to seek to to undermine Christianity by bringing in all kinds of philosophical and, and, and superstitious beliefs. And so Tertullian, in his great effort, his admirable effort, to defend Christianity, to defend the testimony of God's word about his three-in-oneness. It is stated that Tertullian is the first one to employ Trinitas in a formal defense of the Christian faith. So when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about a threefold state of singular being. And that may sound to us like a logical contradiction, but it is not. It is just something that supersedes our limited human logic. It's not a logical contradiction because the scriptures are not saying God is one person and three persons at the same time. The scriptures are not saying God is one essence and three essences at the same time. That would be for us a logical contradiction. Instead, the Bible is saying God is one as it refers to his essence, his substance, his nature, but he is three as it relates to his person. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And again, at that point, our ability to reason that through runs into severe difficulty. We cannot come up with a picture that shows that. We cannot invent something that shows that. All of our best efforts fall short. Why? And the reason is this. This is one of those very, very, very dramatic testimonies that show us that God is incomparable. Remember the book of Isaiah, especially in chapters 40 to 48, as as God, as as Yahweh addresses the, 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 the southern kingdom of Judah, and the inhabitants of that kingdom had found their contentment in tribal deities, the gods of the nations, and had begun to worship these gods and even carve out images that would represent these gods. And God God condemns them because their gods are too small. They are manufactured in man's likeness. They're gods that the the inhabitants of Judah could get their minds around. They're, They're gods made like man. And God asks them, to whom will you compare me? With what can you liken me? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Nothing within our experience, nothing within our ability to reason, nothing can compare with the three-in-oneness of God. And the scriptures proclaim this, that this is true, and we must believe it, even though the scriptures do not explain how. And we'll get to more of that in a few minutes. But as it relates to this definition of God's triunity, we just have discussed what what that triunity means. Let's now compare it with what it is not. In fact, it's very helpful often in studying the character of God and his perfections that we contrast those perfections with that which is the opposite. And in doing so, we can learn about God in that way as well. And so it's helpful here to to define what 
God's triunity does not mean. First of all, that God is triune does not mean that there are three gods. That's what we call tritheism. And the problem of tritheism is that it takes that idea of distinction that is related to persons and applies that idea of distinction to the category of essence, that there are distinctions in the divine essence. And that kind of thinking leads to tritheism. And again, as we think of this, we can look at this and say, well, I can get my mind around tritheism, and that's the problem. It would be easy for you to believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. And often, in the desire to have an easy doctrine, you will have people who will embrace tritheism because it's easy to believe. But again, that is a blasphemy against God because he has told us, to whom will you compare me? And this certainly applies to his three-in-oneness. Tritheism is not an option. There is but one essence. Another heresy, another false teaching that has developed over time is the idea that God merely manifests himself in three ways. Again, that's, that is not what biblical, biblical triunity teaches. That God is triune does not mean that God merely manifests himself in three different ways. Sometimes as the Father, and then he'll change and, and he'll manifest himself in the Son, and then he'll manifest himself later on in the Spirit. That has become a well-blown heresy throughout church history called modalism. It, it was promoted in the, in the third century by a heretic by the name of Sibelius. And today, as well, this, uh, this false teaching lives. It lives in, in uh, oneness Pentecostalism. A very famous preacher by the name of T.D. Jakes is guilty of this heresy and knowingly advocates it. It is not the Trinity. You can look at it this way. In fact, this is, this is one of those analogies that sometimes Christians will use in their effort to depict the Trinity, but it's false. So take H2O. And H2O can exist either in the state of a solid, ice, in a liquid, water, or as a vapor. And some Christians have said, look, it's all H2O, and you have ice, water, vapor. Perfect. There's the Trinity. No. Because the problem is, these three states are not simultaneous. But the triunity of God is singular in essence, three in persons, all at once. And so that analogy fails. Now, speaking of the problem here of modalism, Pastor John in his book, Truth War, points out that modalism is alive and well today. It's alive and well among some very significant television preachers, and it's alive and well, in fact, in some some notable so-called Christian, quasi-Christian musicians whose music in some circles uh, among Christians has become quite popular. Pastor John writes this, Many, perhaps most, in the evangelical movement today are perfectly willing to ignore the lessons of Scripture and history, setting aside the the whole disagreement as something entirely non-essential and to embrace contemporary Sabellianism, modalism, as a legitimate expression of authentic Christian faith. For at least a decade now, Evangelical bestseller lists have included a steady stream of works by authors and musicians who deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They hold to a distinctive version of modalism. That is the official position of Oneness Pentecostals and the United Pentecostal Church International. As these groups and their popular spokespersons have found in Increasing acceptance in the evangelical mainstream, modalism is suddenly being accepted as if it were a valid evangelical option. Indeed, you have many today wondering whether it's really such a big deal. 
As long as somebody believes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and some version of monotheism, does it really matter how it all works out? And as Pastor John says, the lessons of Scripture and history show that it is, it is of primary importance. You cannot simply overlook this and, and, and claim to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to His Word. A third category of error a third way of wrongly understanding the triune nature of God is this, that God is triune does not mean that the divine essence has three parts, one part consisting of the Father, one of the Son, and one of the Spirit. That is something called partialism, and it's depicted like this. And, and perhaps as, as you have in your mind, wrongly sought to come up with diagrams of the Trinity. Perhaps you've even thought this, but it is in error. It suggests that God is made up of components, that his essence is made up of one part father, one part son, and one part spirit. And again, that is a serious, fatal deviation from the biblical witness. That kind of depiction is actually common in in what some Christians have wrongly done in using the egg as an illustration of the Trinity. So an egg has a shell, an egg has an egg yolk, and an egg white. And some have said, hey, there's the perfect illustration of the Trinity. The father is the egg shell, the son is the egg yolk, and the spirit is the egg white. But the problem with that is that, again, you're, you're, you're putting God into parts and making God's essence to be made up of components. And that is not a faithful biblical summation of, of God. Or you'll often see the clover leaf, the three-leafed clover, as, as an example of the Trinity. But again, it has, it has fatal flaws to it. The Father is not just one leaf of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, the God. He is God. The Son is not just one component of God. He is God. The Spirit is not just one part of God. He is God. Simultaneously, all three are God. Another and a fourth categorical error as it relates to the triune the doctrine of, of God's triunity is this, that God is triune does not mean that there is a hierarchy in which God, the Father, creates two lesser gods, the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the view that was articulated by another third century heretic by the name of Arius. He was an influential church leader at the time, and his teachings spread through much of, uh, of Christendom at the time, and there was great popularity even in Arius' teaching. He taught that the Father is uniquely God, but that he has created these magnificent creations of the Son and the Spirit. And it can be represented something like this. The Father creates the Son and creates the Spirit and and they are different than him, even though they, to some extent, share his divine glory. That, again, is heresy. And in our day, it's represented by Jehovah's Witnesses, who have this same approach to understanding the, the three-in-oneness of, of God. And as we look at these errors, we realize that it can be so easy to fall into one of, of two major errors, either in denying the oneness of the essence or in denying the threeness of the persons. And when you look at doctrinal heresies related to the, to the person of God, related to the existence of God, they, they fall on one of two sides denying either the singularity of the essence or the threeness of the persons. And capturing this thought, Herman Bavinck 
writes this, quote, The great challenge facing us with this dogma of the Trinity is to see to it that the, uni- that the unity of the divine essence does not cancel out the trinity of the persons, or conversely, that the trinity of the persons does not abolish the unity of the divine essence. There is always the threat of deviation either to the right or to the left and of falling either into the, area, the era, error of Sibelius or that of Arius. Sibelius, modalism, or Arius, three distinct essences. We must maintain that very careful line, three persons in one divine essence. And so coming back to this, this um, chart that I had put up a little bit earlier, we come back and we recognize the emphasis as it pertains to essence. There is one stressing singularity. As it pertains to person, there are three, and that emphasizes distinction. Now, where do we go wrong? We go wrong, we go into heresy when we mix up these, these arrows. So if you look at the, or, or conceive, think of the essence of God, and you see three, then you are making distinctions in the essence of God, and that leads you to, to Arianism, or even tritheism. Or, if you're considering the person of God, and you see just one, then you're you're stressing the singularity of the person and you fall into the heresy of modalism. So as you look at those two charts there on the screen, the first one is what reflects and summarizes the biblical witness. The one below represents the views that have corrupted and misunderstood the biblical witness. Well, let's now turn to that biblical witness. We believe in God's three-in-oneness not because of church tradition, not because of uh, logical deduction or some kind of philosophical argument. We believe first and foremost in the Trinity because the Scriptures teach it. Church tradition certainly is helpful. It has a a very important ministerial influence in our lives in that it can point out to us where we are going astray. It can also help us understand how Christians and other generations have fought against all the attempts to malign the one true God. But ultimately, when asked, why do you believe the Trinity? Our answer is the Bible teaches it. And as we think of the Scripture's testimony of God's three-in-oneness, we can organize it along four lines of reasoning, four categories of evidence, four voices of, of testimony. And the first one is this. This is where we begin with Scripture's witness to God's three-in-oneness. It begins with what we call singularity. The Bible teaches that there is one divine essence. One divine essence. This is what we call monotheism, the belief in one God, and scripture is unequivocal about that reality. There is just one God. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In that opening statement, we have an affirmation and an assertion of monotheism. God created. He created everything else. There is one. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, Yahweh says this, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or to take that 
title Lord and use God's name there. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. One essence. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. There is no God. I am, he says. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 30, Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment and Jesus responds, drawing that truth from the Shema and bringing it into his own teaching. He's, he responds to the question of the foremost commandment this way. He, Jesus says, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. There is one Lord. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 says this, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Very clear, unequivocal. There's no way around this. There is but one Lord. James 2, verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons also believe that and shudder. So we begin with that singularity. The Bible teaches monotheism. That's where we start. But it moves on to a second line of reasoning, and that is the reasoning of plurality. The Bible teaches that there is a plurality of persons in God. The Bible teaches this. The the Bible teaches that distinct persons are, are associated with this divine essence. And as you move through Scripture, from the earlier portions to the later portions, over time, through the progress of, rela- uh, of revelation, you have the, 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 the increasing development of these persons, their clarity that is brought out increasingly as you move throughout Scripture. And they are identified as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we go even to the beginning for this. Notice in Genesis 1, in the opening verses, you have already a reference to this profound nature of God. Genesis 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God. Already in that opening sentence, that opening segment of of the Bible, of special revelation, there is already an exposure of us as readers, and especially of that original audience, the Jews, the Israelites, to whom Moses writes. There is already this developing idea that when we talk about the singularity of God, It is not singularity as we might think of it in terms of our own personal identity. It is much more profound. We see this developed even further in Genesis in the opening chapters. In 1 verse 26, God addresses himself. And as he does, he says this, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. He's not speaking of the likeness of angels. He is speaking to the magnificent glory of his essence. And a little bit later on in chapter 3, verse 22, God again addresses himself. Behold, the man has become like one of us. And then in 11, verse 7, come, let us go down in that context of the Tower of Babel. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. You move further. Psalm 110 verse 1. Here, you have David, the highest in the kingdom. There is no one in, in earth, on earth that is higher than David as it relates to Yahweh and the nation of Israel. 
And yet David pens this psalm, Psalm 110, and he says this, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David recognized, even as he being the king, recognized that there was indeed a Lord over him. And this Lord, whom he addresses as Adonai, is addressed by Yahweh. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, Yahweh says, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Notice the threefold nature there. I, my spirit, and him. When we move to the New Testament, this revelation becomes even more developed. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. You see the threefold nature there. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, notice there again the threefold nature. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. So you see Spirit, you see Lord, a reference to the Son, and you see God the Father. There is distinction. There is persons associated with the singular divine essence. Thirdly, a third third category of evidence, of witness, is this. Deity. Deity, you have singularity, you have plurality, and now you have deity. The Bible teaches that all three persons are equally divine. They possess deity and everything that goes with deity. Whatever divine qualities describe the Father are used to describe the Son and the Spirit. And so, John 1, 1, the Word was God, deity. The Word was God. John 5, verse 17 to 18, as we look at how the Son is is described as being divine. Jesus answered the Jews and said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working for this reason. Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews understood the nature of this testimony. John 8, 58, that very powerful statement Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, he doesn't say I was, he says I am. Ego y me. The very important statement that would, that would serve as the Greek version of Exodus three fourteen, where Yahweh says I am. Here Jesus says, and he does so, 15 times, over 15 times in the Gospel of John, and in response to questions, he simply says, I am, I am, I am, referring to that aseity that he possesses in himself. Later on in, in the New Testament, in Romans, you have a very vivid account of, of how deity is ascribed to the Son. In Romans 10, in the section from verses 9 to 13, you have Paul saying this, that this is, this is the, the gospel message. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But understand, when Paul uses the term Lord, it's not in a vacuum. 
And it's, it's used in light of the Old Testament teaching. And in fact, what he does in emphasizing that Jesus is Lord, he draws from two important texts, Isaiah 28, 16, and Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Those Old Testament citations say that we are to look and call upon the name of Yahweh for our salvation. Paul says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him, and in that context of Isaiah 28, 16, it's referring to Yahweh, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, whoever will call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. But Paul, without apology, says that you are to call upon the name of Jesus in this same way for your salvation. There couldn't be a more direct way for Paul to emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ than what he has just done. You could look at Colossians 2 verse 9. In him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1 verses 7 to 8, another dramatic statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. The The writer of Hebrews says this, And of the angels God says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. And notice what follows. But of the Son, God says, God addresses the Son and says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The Father addresses the Son in this context. And the Father addresses him as God. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, you find the similar testimony. John 14, verse 26, uh, 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. The idea there is that Jesus has been the helper to the disciples up to this point, but he is leaving them. He is departing. And they will need another helper. And what's interesting, that, that, that term, another in the Greek, doesn't speak of a, another of a different kind. It's another of the same essence. I will give you another helper of the same essence, Jesus says. Or the Father will, that he may be with you. The spirit of truth. Acts 5 verses 3 to 4 The Holy Spirit is the one who is sinned against by Ananias. You could look at Acts 13 verses 2 to 4 when the elders of the church in Antioch are praying. It's the Holy Spirit that addresses them and gives them orders. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11, you have Paul make the statement that no one can understand the mind of God. God's mind is incomprehensible, but there is a person who understands, and it's the Spirit. The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. In other words, there is one who can get his mind around God and comprehend God, and that is the Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 refers to the Spirit as the eternal Spirit. Hebrews 10.29 refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of grace that can be insulted by sin. Over and over again, we could spend many, many long hours tracing these, these evidences where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all described in terms of deity. Let's look to a fourth line of reasoning that supports this doctrine of the Trinity. Not only do we see singularity and plurality in deity, we now see unity. The Bible teaches that these three persons are of one essence. And Scripture does this by joining the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together in this inseparable union. And it attributes to each the same works as the other. It's very interesting. A great text to to look at is Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus says to the disciples, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one name. Not names, 
name. And that was very significant in that Jewish context because you would never ascribe the name of God to anyone else. And yet Jesus, in this freedom, says, baptize them in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus in John 10, 30 to 31, and and also in verse 38 says, I and the Father are one. He says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And, And people read that today and say, well, there's no deity there. There's no, but the Jews recognized it. And when they heard Jesus say that, what did they do? They picked up stones because they believed that Jesus was blaspheming. Romans 8 verse 9, you have a reference, this threefold reference, a reference first to the Holy Spirit, and then he's called the Spirit of God, and then the Spirit of Christ. These these descriptions tie these persons together in one essence. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, speaking of the gifts, they come from the same Spirit. They come from the same Lord. They come from the same God. You have this unity that is undeniable as it as it ties these persons together in one essence. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 to 18. The Lord is the Spirit, the glory of the Lord, the Lord the Spirit. Over and over again, you see these, these persons connected inseparably in one unity, and that unity is the triune Godhead. You could look at Paul's use of the title Savior in the letter to Titus, and in one moment he's calling Christ the Savior. In the next breath he's calling God the Father the Savior. He has no qualms about freely moving with that very important title and ascribing it either to the Father or to the Son. And that is because they are of one essence. It's in light of this that MacArthur and Mayhew state this, based on biblical evidence, the unprejudiced mind, you could say the mind that has eyes to see and ears to hear, cannot doubt the existence of a plurality of persons in the Godhead, cannot doubt that without impugning the clarity, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of the Scriptures. Any accurate discussion of the Trinity must begin and end with what the Bible declares. We believe in the Trinity because the Bible clearly reveals it. As we close, let's think about how the, this doctrine of the Trinity affects us. And there's so much we could talk about, but let me focus on three things for tonight. First, embrace the doctrine of the Trinity by faith. As I said at the beginning, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most striking aspects of the incomprehensibility of God. And that's a good thing. And, and we ought not to feel ashamed or embarrassed that we can't take the doctrine of the triunity of God and describe or draw it nicely on a page. Don't fall into that trap. Perhaps you're witnessing to, 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 to a, a coworker, a friend, and he's heard of this doctrine and you're communicating the doctrine of the Trinity to him. And he says, okay, I want you to, to write it all out here, nice syllogisms, and I want you to 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 draw a picture, to find that analogy, and then I'll believe in it. And you feel that you failed when you say, I can't do that. You've not failed. In fact, you've only given him reason why he must believe in this God. He is incomparable. If you could put that on a paper, if you could describe that, what kind of God is that? And how in the world is he going to save your soul? It's the incomparability of God precisely here that makes him believable. Yes, we cannot 
describe it in nice syllogisms and on a piece of paper, but he has revealed it, and we must believe it by faith. As I said, he has told us that he is triune. He has not told us how, and because he has not told us how does not mean that it is illogical to believe in this or that it is irrational to believe in this. No, he knows that it is beyond our reasoning ability. Therefore, We must exercise the muscle of faith and embrace this and say, I know that even though I don't know how. We trust in God as God, not because we can figure him out and fit him into our puny minds, but we trust him. We have faith precisely because we cannot comprehend him in that absolute fashion. God's Word tells us that, it does not tell us how, and it's in the area of the how that we leave it to God and his wisdom, and we embrace what he has revealed, and we cling to that as a precious exercise of faith. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Matthew, puts it this way, this truth is a great mystery. Let it be enough to receive and believe it, and let us ever abstain from all attempts at explanation. It is childish folly to refuse assent to things that we do not understand. We are poor crawling worms of a day, and at our best know little about God and eternity. Suffice it for us to receive the doctrine of the Trinity in unity, with humility and reverence, and to ask no vain questions. Let us believe that no sinful soul could be saved without the work of all three persons in the blessed Trinity, and let us rejoice that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who cooperated to make man, do always cooperate to save him. Here let us pause. We may receive practically what we cannot explain theoretically. Embrace this doctrine by faith. Secondly, marvel at the profundity of the Godhead. Let this doctrine carry you to the rightful destination, and that is adoration. It it should lead us to to give special attention in our worship to this magnificent, glorious reality about who God is. We sang it earlier this evening in that song, All Creatures of Our God and King. As as you come to the end of that hymn, in the final stanza, it says this, Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit three in one. This is what the revelation of God's triune nature is to do to us. It's to lead us to praise, to adoration. Or in that hymn, holy, 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 we sang those words, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. There's other hymns, and if you look in hymns of grace, hymns number 324 to 320 or to 330, all are hymns that, that are written by those who have, who have sought to understand what God has revealed, the that, and have put it into praise. And this is what it is to do in our lives. It should make us, us come up with our own hymns in adoration of this God that we cannot fit in our minds, but who is glorious in his three-in-oneness. J. Gresham Machen says this, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. No human mind can fathom it, yet what a blessed mystery it is. The Christian's heart melts within him in gratitude and joy when he thinks of the divine love and condescension that has thus lifted the veil and allowed us sinful creatures to look into the very depths of the being of God. You know, you may be one of those that says, you know what, this is problematic for me. I can't come up with the drawing of the Trinity on a paper, and that bothers me. Oh, that is the exact opposite of what it should do. The fact that you can't put it on paper should lead you to that warmest worship. Another church 
father of the fourth century, Gregory of Nazianzus, said this, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them that I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Lead it to adoration. Thirdly, and really practically, there's so many, so many admonitions that flow out of the triune nature of God. But one of the ones that the Apostle Paul particularly points to is the importance of relationships, unity in relationships in the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, notice this as we close. In Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, there is this exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And he goes on to say this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You might say, okay, that's a great exhortation. And you might just want to move on, but Paul doesn't move on. He immediately establishes it within its, its doctrinal basis. In the In the following verses, he says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. What this shows us is that the example that we see in the three-in-oneness of God is an example for us. It has to impact our relationships, Paul says. Because God is three in one, the church should be one. You could even look at this in the context of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Same idea. I am in you and you and me. That's what Jesus says to the Father. And then he prays for the unity of the church. And here Paul is doing the same thing. And that leads us to very practical implication on this. Because God is triune, it does have an impact on how you relate to the men around you. How you relate to the men in this church. How you relate to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot be ambivalent to your relationships. You cannot treat your relationships with one another simply as some unnecessary issue. If you believe in the Trinity, it'll have direct implications for how you relate to one another. And you will not sleep until you have done what you can to restore peace with, with brothers with whom you've broken that peace. In closing, I read from Joel Beakey and Brian Cosby when they say this, the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us that relationships are central to the Christian faith. We must not pretend to know the triune God while living in broken relationships with others by failing to do what is in our power to reconcile. Instead, we should strive for peace, harmony, unity, partnership, and deep friendships with God's saints. You know, it would be the greatest thing for that person to hear, that one with whom you are at odds, for you to say, you know what, I believe in the Trinity, and because because of that, I value our relationship. This is a a profound truth. Let us pray now that the Lord would press it deep within us and lead us to that adoration. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, which is the direct manifestation of your gracious condescension to us. And that you have allowed us through your word to peer in to your majesty. We also thank you, Father, for your plan of redemption which you, which you designed before the foundation of time. That you would choose us to be the recipients of your love and grace and eternal joy. 
Son of God, we are thankful for you, for your glorious incarnation. You are the Word manifest in the flesh. You are the one to accomplish our redemption. You are a great high priest who even now takes these feeble prayers of ours, so fallible and so often misguided, and you take those prayers, and in that throne room of grace, you make them perfect. Holy Spirit, we adore you as the one who applies the design of redemption by the Father, accomplished by the Son, you apply it in our lives, bringing it into reality in our experience. You are that helper. You are that great intercessor who within us ever lives to intercede with groanings too deep for words. We praise and adore you as well. And may the truths that you, O God, have revealed about your three-in-oneness, may they capture our love and affection, our attention, and may they be these glorious truths that bring tears to our eyes and joy in the midst of a crooked world. We pray this in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.